Thank you so much. Have a seat this morning. And I want to take this moment and say welcome to all of you. Happy May. It is May, finally. And uh, what a beautiful, beautiful day it is today, as well as uh, it's going to be a really good start to the week here. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about good weather, but I'm really excited that you are with us, that you are part of our service today. Uh, and I think there are a lot of things, there are a lot of reasons why God brings us together. Um, so I want to say two things. First of all, I want to remind you for, to, that you can ask questions remotely uh, by going to swiftpolling.com and putting in that code 24424. Ask questions or in today's message, maybe even share thoughts or experiences that you have with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we have to fight our way back together. Uh, we kind of all of a sudden we're apart and lived apart and have a little bit of natural hesitation and fear with one another. We're going to have to fight our way back together. Uh, I know Dave talked at the beginning of the service about a full schedule. Now, we have got to find a way back to us, to what, what was precious and is precious to us, which is relationships. And uh, so depending on wherever you can take a next step, please do. We, this is not going to be a coast thing. We're not going to coast into normal. We're going to have to keep working back to it, and it's going to take all of us. So wherever you can take that next step, whether it's the ladies' event on Friday night, even if it's just coming out to Bible study on Wednesday night, getting back to your small group or joining one of these small groups or whatever it is, please help us take that step. And then we need some intestinal fortitude here as we work back towards it, because I guarantee you as we go, some of you will think we're going too slow, and some of you think we're going too fast. But what we're doing is going the same place we all agree, which is back to normal. We got to get there, right? So let's move there and pray and, and ask God to help us all move that way together. And I'm asking you to be thoughtful about your the next steps in that whatever they may be. Because it really does matter that we are together. And not just in theory, but in person. It really does matter. It is heartbeat of our church. It is the thing that we do. It's the relationships we have. So we are working on that together. All right, we are in Numbers chapter 12, so I would invite you to take your Bible to Numbers chapter 12, and we are going to talk today about this great, fun topic called betrayal. Yeah, betrayal. Not, not the most uh, hype topic that we could talk about, but I think one that we're all pretty familiar with. I think you could share some stories about betrayal. I could share some stories. Matter of fact, let me share something that's going on. I face betrayal every single day in my life. It, it happens daily with me. My body is betraying me <laughs> as I go. I thought we had a deal when I was a teenager that what things were going to be like, right? Now I wake up with injuries like, what happened while I was sleeping? I guess I was doing some construction or something or, you know, anything that's different than what I normally do. Uh, suddenly my body is sore. Or I've got a bruise and like, what did I hit? What was that all about? So your body betrays you. As a matter of fact, it started, some of you are like, well, I'm in my 20s and my body's betraying me. It started in my 20s too. I remember that. I remember um, when I went to college, I could really eat. You know what I mean? Like I could really, like Dwight and I used to go down to the beach with Little Caesar's pizzas. And back in the day, they gave you two pizzas. Do you, anybody remember this? They called it pizza pizza because they had two pizzas on a big thing of cardboard, right? Now they just, they, they totally jip you. They just give you one. But back in the day, you could get two. So we'd get two large pizzas. We'd get two orders of crazy breads. We'd get two 
32-ounce Cokes, and we would go down to the beach, and he, and he would eat one pizza, and I would eat one pizza, and he would eat one order of crazy bread, I would eat the other, and, and I was 145 pounds. <laughs> you know, then it got a few years later, and all of a sudden, things started to swell up when I ate like that, <laughs> right? All this extra stuff hanging off of me. So our body betrays us over time. As a matter of fact, my mind has been betraying me more and more recently, but that's a whole, <laughs> whole other story. Betrayal. Betrayal is absolutely a part of this world and a part of your life and a part of my life. I know I am not speaking to people who don't know what I'm talking about, and I know I'm speaking to people who know it more than just hypothetically or more than in some cloudy way. You know it up close and personal because we live in a world where humans are imperfect and broken and have problems, and are messy, and we are too. And so we are going to feel betrayed, and we are going to betray other people. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes it's done to us intentionally. They are Someone's actively working against us for some reason, or some cause, or some purpose, eyes wide open, and they're going to hurt us, and they know it, and they don't care. But a lot of times it's unintentional. People are just doing something, and then it's like, oh, I didn't realize that that hurt you. It stings nonetheless. And we start to get convinced that relationships are dangerous, that people are dangerous, that we need to keep a a safe distance from everyone, that we need to back up and, and, and stay away. We need to isolate. We need to insulate from the harm that people can do to us. So we hope maybe somewhere there is healing, there is better, there is someone I can trust that's not going to wreck me. We, we hope that. But over time, you can get convinced that it's never going to happen. And you can find yourself stuck in the fallout of betrayal. The pain of it keeps you stuck. And you live reacting to betrayal every single day. Your life gets bent in reacting to the possibility or maybe the probability that someone is going to hurt you. And I'm telling you this day, this is not how we were designed to live. This is a trap that the enemy has laid for you and for me to keep us less than fulfilled, less than satisfied, more depressed, more isolated, more hopeless, more hurting than we ever were supposed to be. It is a trap, and it has facts. Yes, that person hurt you, and that person betrayed you. It has facts, so we live on guard, and we live at the safe safe distance, but I'm telling you, this is not the way we were designed to be. And I'm not telling you this because I don't struggle with betrayal, and you do. I'm telling you this because I know it very up close and personally. Betrayal is a big deal for me. It's a big deal because if, if... you are around me in ministry, and we talk about people and serving people, what you'll find is this. I have a very decided point of view that I am going to think the best of people. Now, I don't do it perfectly, and I don't do it all the time, but even when I don't, I kind of work my way back to it because I can't survive by always being suspicious and having my radar. I just It's not who I am. It's not how I am, right? But the fall, the, the, the downfall of that is, When someone betrays that trust or that good intention, that wrecks me. That rocks me. It it, it gets down to the deepest part of me. Some of the biggest moments of betrayal in my life have made me question 
my value, my calling. I know there are times where I said I cannot imagine ever standing up and speaking to people again from some of those moments of betrayal. Even whether it's ever going to be able for me to trust someone again. So betrayal has fallouts. And I think as I talk to you today, there are a number of different stories of betrayal in this room. Some of them come right to your mind. Some of them are way, way back. But you are living, responding to those. Maybe it was parents who kind of this, this implicit contract with parents, they are going to provide a safe place, a nurturing place for you to grow up. But they didn't. For some reason, it didn't happen that way. Maybe intentionally or unintentionally. But for you, it felt less than safe. It always felt like you were in danger somehow, some way. And you live with that sense of unsafety, of insecurity. Maybe it was, I've walked with many of you through this, a partner that vowed to be faithful and to stand by you for life, but they did exactly the opposite. And you live in the fallout in your life, but you live with the fallout in your soul every single day. It could be less up close and personal. It could be business partners or coworkers or, or public authorities who used either your trust or their power to hurt you and bring irreparable harm to your life. So what do we do, people of God? When we face betrayal, what do we do? How do we answer that? How do we respond to that? Do we feel like we just have to, we're changed and, and life is just now diminished and we have to live always on guard? Or do the people of God have an answer? Is there something about knowing the Creator that gives hope even in betrayal? I know that's a much bigger question than I can fully answer today, but we're going to see a story here in Numbers 12 that I think has some things to teach us. I think what you'll find is if you're a child of God, if you have crossed that line of faith, if you've given your life to Jesus, that you can be sure that God sees your betrayal and that he is trustworthy enough for you to give it to him and let him sort it out. As a matter of fact, when you do that, I think what you will find is that God can take even betrayal and use it for purpose, for good, for better in your life. Even when it feels like all it's done is wrecked you, somehow God can bring transformation from it because God is big enough that betrayal does not need to wreck your life if you are his. So let's look at the story in Numbers chapter 12. Let's, we, we just came out of this, this whole event where Moses and the people of God have been complaining about their food and, and the manna and then quail came and there's been a plague through camp. Moses was also weary and ready to give up. God, please kill me. And God brought help to him, 70 elders. So that's where we are in the story. And now the next verse, after that whole plague has been resolved about the quail, chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. That last phrase, the Lord heard this, that's going to be important. I think that sometimes is what we miss in betrayal. And the Lord heard this. Like, God, we think we have to inform God. God, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what they said? The Lord heard this. All right, let's begin at the beginning. Miriam and Aaron are the siblings of Moses. 
sister, older sister, older brother. They have been co-leaders with him, and now they decide to undermine him, to criticize him, to question him. They question him about who he married. They, they call into question who he married. But the real question was, is Moses, Moses all that? You guys are acting like Moses is some great leader. Is he? Is Moses all that? We're pretty good leaders too. You should, you should include us in all of that. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on here. They are doing what betrayal often does, which is betrayal is not so concerned with the facts as with the impact of what they say. In other words, if you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. The one who betrays you doesn't always concern themselves with telling the truth so much as saying what they can to have the effect they want. What do I mean? Well, here they're talking about Moses' wife. The only wife we've been introduced to in the book of Exodus was Zipporah, who was a Midianite. Cushite, which is not you know, short for couch cushion or anything, Cushite is actually a nationality. It speaks about the descendants of Noah, and it refers to people of African descent, Cushite. So what they are talking about is that Moses married someone who has dark skin. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about Moses married someone who is an outsider. Now, they're not so concerned that according to what I, I mean, there are, there's argument about this, but I believe they're talking about Zipporah. There's no reason for them to call her a Cushite except that her skin is dark. So they're like, well, who is this outsider? They're pointing at her skin and saying, listen, Moses married an outsider. And they're doing this in the context of after chapter 10 and chapter 11, the outsiders who lived on the outskirts of camp, those who were not Israelite by birth, those were the people who caused all the problems for the last two plagues, the last two problems with God. So now Miriam and Aaron are like, hey, look at who Moses married. And he married a foreigner, and you can clearly see it by her skin color. So you should be fearful of Moses. You should trust his leadership less. You should look more to us because we're people who are not like that. People who are connected to the scary outsiders. Truly, this is nothing less than using racism to fan the flames of division in the people of God. I think that might be a little bit timely for today. People of God, let's be clear. First of all, racism is almost is never the root cause of the problem. Racism is the, the talking point, but it is an outflow of those who have power wanting to keep power. It is the, the, the logic or the reasoning why, but underneath of all of it is, I have power, I have advantage, and I'm going to find some reason to keep it. For Miriam and Aaron, they wanted the power of staying as equal co-leaders. They wanted the, the, the status. and So they're using this color of skin thing to say to, to people, you can't trust Moses. We're leaders. I'm a leader too. You should trust me as much as Moses. You should trust me more than Moses. And I know our country has had all kinds of discussions about race issues, and I don't know that I have any uh, big solutions for that for you this morning, but I will say that's the way racism has been used throughout history. Throughout all of recorded history, people use race as a reason to treat someone as less. The real problem is deeper. That, that is the, the way we try to convince others 
to agree with us that we should keep advantage. The real problem is that those with advantage want to find some reason to keep their advantage. And there's lots of advantages that we want to keep. I want to keep my financial advantage. I want to keep my status advantage. I want to keep my, my recognition or my fame advantage. I want to, whatever it is, I use anything to keep my advantage. And we don't always say, I'm just being selfish because that's too blunt. So we find some logic and reasoning why we should be able to look down at other people. The deeper problem here, especially in this story, is that the people of God are the holders of the dignity of man that we were created in the image of God. As a matter of fact, Moses is the guy who wrote that. Moses is the guy who wrote in Genesis that man was formed in the image of God. And now Moses is involved and the people of God who've been entrusted with that truth are involved in acting like God's creative act of distinguishing people and giving people all kinds of variety, including colors of skin, now somehow is a mark of who's better and who's worse. If you believed in natural selection, if you believed in survival of the fittest, you could have some logic to saying, well, these people are better than these people. You could try to have that logic. But when we're all created in the image of God, there is no way you can have that logic. So when the people of God embrace some idea of downgrading those who are created in God's image, including by the color of their skin, we wreck our witness and we defame God's creation and we undermine our mission. So people of God, we cannot be involved in anything like that. It has no part in the church of Jesus Christ. So they betray him. Look at Moses. You don't want to trust him. Look at his wife. She's an outsider. You don't want to trust him. So this personal attack comes with these lies, these distortions of truth. And they do it in this ingenious way. They don't make a statement. I don't know if you recognized it in verse 2. They didn't make a statement. They asked questions. It's a way that people who who are betraying you sidestep accountability. Well, all I was doing was asking a question. I mean, has, has God not spoken through us? All I'm doing is asking a question. I'm not making a statement, God has spoken through us, and then you can argue about it. No, I haven't taken a position. I'm just raising questions. I, want, I wish we as people of God would recognize this strategy because it's all around us all the time. Whether you're talking about the virus or whether you're talking about politics or whatever you're talking about, people just raise questions with no accountability to answer the question. And all it does is stir up fear and doubt in people and drive people to make decisions and choices, but they never have to prove anything. They never have to take a stand on anything. They they just move us. All I did was ask a question. That's what Miriam and Aaron do. And when you feel betrayed, it makes you question yourself. It makes you question, what did I do? Should I have done something different? Your, your words, your choices, your decisions. But here, just like in many times, betrayal is not about your decisions. When someone betrays you, it's not because you did the wrong thing. You may have done the wrong thing. But their betrayal, if they're close enough to you to betray you, then they should, when you make a mistake, come close to you. Come to you. Walk with you. Care about you. That's what That's what we should do as believers. Not point it out, put it on display, and make it a laughingstock. Not use it to our advantage. Betrayal. The reason that people do that who are close to you is not about you. It's about them. It's about insecurity. It's about their personal pain. It's about their experience. 
Aaron and Miriam felt like they needed to get more respect or climb up higher, that Moses was, was pushing them down so they were going to fight back. But their words about Moses were not so much coming from Moses' actions as from their own desperation to matter and to be important. Their jealousy blinded them to the hurt that they were inflicting on Moses didn't care. To, to the way that they were trashing the truth doesn't matter. Their jealousy blinded them to it. So they acted in betraying their brother, their co-leader, the man of God. By the way, before we move on and read the next part, I want to make one note language-wise, which is that when we read in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against. The verb talk against is a feminine verb. And what it implies in Hebrew, what it, what it says pretty directly, is that Miriam was the driver of this. That Miriam was the one, and Aaron went along with it, but Miriam was the one speaking it. She was the one speaking against. Maybe Aaron was with her as she went around, or Aaron was like, yeah, or what, but it came from Miriam. Maybe because Moses' wife, now she's the focus of the problem, so maybe she was worried that Moses' wife was going to be the leader, and she had been the leader of the women in Israel, so there was, I don't know, we don't know, but we know that Miriam is the one who is driving this thing. So Moses faces betrayal, a betrayal that we can understand, a betrayal probably that we feel very identified with. So the next question is, what does Moses do? So pick up with me, verse 3 down to verse 11. It says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles, when he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above them, or the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned towards her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. So here's the answer to our question. What is Moses going to do? The answer is nothing. Now that sounds ridiculous. To many of us, this is a, a moment to step up, to fight back, to speak up, to make sure that we stand up for the truth. But the first statement we get is, Moses is a very humble man. Wait a minute, I thought he was a leader. Aren't leaders full of themselves, arrogant, loud? Aren't, aren't leaders big personalities? Evidently not. Leaders can be and should be humble. Moses is perhaps the greatest leader in the Old Testament. And Moses is humble. Not because he thinks he's a lousy person, but because he thinks the story's not all about him. That's the idea. The idea is not that Moses is like, well, I'm not worth anything. I'm not. His, the, the idea is Moses doesn't think this is all about me. 
It is a lesson any leader in any position of influence, parent, boss, teacher, whatever it is, the authority and power that you are given is not for you. It's for those that you serve. It's for those that are under your care. You are called to use whatever power you have for their good. That kind of leader is a trustworthy leader. And that kind of leader is the the leader that God magnifies their leadership because they're not going to take more of it and make it about themselves. So Moses' humility, the word actually for humility here is a word that points to directly, not the normal word for meekness or humility. It's actually a word that points directly at this person completely depends on God. They are convinced that God is their only hope. They are convinced that God is the one that they need. And so they rest in God. They don't try to take it up themselves. And I think from Moses' example, we learn that there's a pathway to peace in betrayal. There's a pathway to healing. And it isn't in you making sure everyone thinks the right thing about you. It's a walk of faith and a walk that Moses had. So his humility caused him to simply trust God with this attack. God, you heard it. You'll take care of it. It really does teach us something. We can trust that God both knows the truth and that God will make the truth known. What if you believed that God was able to defend you whenever you needed defending? What if you believed that your reputation with other people was not something that you needed to fix all the time? That you needed to make sure everyone thinks the right thing about you? How You're like, well, I don't even know what I would think about that. Maybe we are caught in a trap of racing for responsibility that God never gave us. Maybe you and I can trust God. It doesn't mean that we will never confront someone, we will never be involved, but it does mean the results aren't mine. I'm trusting the Lord. If you follow that argument that there is one person who brings justice, who's the one who brings justice? You. Are you the judge? Are you the one who sets all things right? No. God is. And because he is, I trust him to be the one to do that. I'm not going to try to get my hands in there and be like, God, I'll do 90% of it, then you can carry it across the finish line. Your 90% is probably backwards. He needs to undo all of it so he can do it right, right? Paul in Romans 12 says, therefore, because God is the one who's the judge and God is the one who misses nothing and God is the one who is righteous, leave vengeance to him. For your part, repay evil with good. Live at peace with all men. That's Romans 12. That's what he said. And how do I do that? I do that by trusting that God is righteous in his judgment. My faith needs to trust God to deal with stuff like this so that I don't panic, so that I'm not on a tizzy, so that I don't turn my life from whatever God had put in front of me over here to try to manage my reputation or what people think or what people are saying. Instead, I'll be like, God, you see that. You'll let me know if I need to deal with that, but I'm going to keep doing what you asked me to do because I know you have me and I know I can rest in that. I'll have this conversation with my soul that you are Lord of all, even my reputation, even what they're saying, even the betrayal. You're Lord of that too. So we have to be willing to be silent 
and still before we can know if God wants to use our voice. For some of us, we're like, well, if God doesn't want me to use my voice, he'll have to stop me. I would suggest you flip that around. If God wants to use your voice, make him start you. Make him push you forward. I trust that God knows the truth and that God can bring the truth to light. And I also trust this, that God can take even someone's intention to harm me and use it for good. Remember the whole story of Joseph? His brothers betray him. And that 13-year journey where at the end from, from, from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, we get to the end and Joseph's summary is, yes, brothers, you intended to harm me. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. I trusted the Lord through this process so I don't come out with bitterness. I don't come out stuck in the fallout of betrayal. I look at it as though God is the one in charge of my life. My life is in His hands. So I find rest in my soul and I'm able to still be faithful to God's calling and God's purpose in my life. Miriam has spoken against Moses and she's done something more serious than she realizes because she should have spoken with respect to God's person. Not because Moses was so respectable, but because God placed him. And so disrespecting him disrespected the Lord. It's the same in church. There's no place for jealousy in church. God gives us gifts. We all have gifts. We all use them to serve one another. It doesn't matter if somebody has this gift or that gift. We are all part of the body of Christ, not the body of me or the body of you. We are part of the body of Christ. He's the one who gets the glory. We get to be a part of what he's doing. So God is going to deal with this. And the way that he deals with this, verse 9, the anger of the Lord burns against them and he leaves them. Can you imagine after Miriam and Aaron are going around the camp and like, who does Moses think he is? And don't you think we're leaders too and whatever? And all of a sudden, from the tabernacle, the way it was, the tabernacle's in the middle, then there's like these rings of, of tents around it of millions of people. And all of a sudden, from the tabernacle, it says, Aaron, Miriam, Moses, come here. Can you imagine? Wherever they were, they had this long walk to the tabernacle. Like, and then when they get there, it says, God says, Aaron and Miriam, take a step forward. Yikes, right? God is going to deal with this in a way to teach his people. He needs to teach his people that this kind of gossip and slander and jealousy and power struggle is not going to be the norm for the people of God. We are not going to act like the world. We're not going to step over each other. and We're not going to shoot at each other. That's not what we're going to do. So he does this whole thing in the sight of all Israel. These three come forward. Then he calls those two forward and he makes it clear these people are wrong. They should not have done this. And he does it in a number of very visible ways, not just audible, but visible. Remember when Moses went up the mountain and met with God in the cloud, his skin changed. It glowed. Now Miriam meets with God and her skin changes and it's leprous. It's diseased. She had a comment about Zipporah's skin being the wrong color, and God changes the color of her skin. God makes it, and then think about this. They're in the middle of this large camp of millions of people, and God says to her, now everybody sees what you've done. Everybody hears what's right and wrong, and God is not finished so pick up with me, verse 12, down to verse 16. It says this, Do not let, Aaron's still talking, Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. Two other things I want to talk to you about this betrayal and the resolution of it. One is this. God's people don't hold grudges. God's people do not rejoice in the downfall of others. Aaron says to his brother, please forgive us. Please don't let her skin fall off of her. Please pray to God. And Moses turns to God and says, Lord, please heal her. A really short prayer, but it tells us a lot about Moses' heart, which was, I'm not like, yes, get her, God. There was no satisfaction or joy in the suffering of someone who had betrayed him, and there should not be for us either. Instead, as people who trust in the living God, the righteous judge who sees all and sorts it all out, we should have sorrow for people who are lost, sorrow for people who are facing the fallout of their sin and their rebellion, doing things that God does not want them to do, lying or trashing people. We should recognize, I needed grace so I can give grace and I can root for them to come to the light. That is what the people of God do. You and I can afford to have compassion and concern on people who have wronged us. Even when they're not repentant, we can still root for them to get it. It doesn't mean that we condone or excuse what they've done, but we can forgive what they've done. However, the other thing God teaches is that forgiveness and restoration are not the same thing. It's very interesting that Miriam although it is implied that she is healed immediately, has to take a walk through the whole camp and live outside the camp for seven days. Miriam, after being chastened by God, has to kind of face probably many of the people she just got done talking to about Moses and walk outside the camp and live outside the camp for seven days. God had this meeting in public so that they all could see, so that they all could learn, so that as time goes on, those who would let jealousy make them betray others would remember this moment. Those who would face being betrayed would remember this moment and say, this is against God. This is not the way we're going to live. And it was such a big deal that when Miriam moved outside the camp, the whole nation did not move for seven days, even though the implication is they would have, they didn't because her sin affected millions of people. It's a lesson that God is teaching His people. And He teaches them quite a bit about betrayal and relationships. When someone's betrayed you, wisdom teaches you it's not restoration that you can offer right away. It's forgiveness. And then you can work for restoration. But restoration takes two people who are willing to face the truth and come back and set things right and apologize and offer. For, that we can do that. But forgiveness on my part is something I can offer because I trust in God. There is fallout to betrayal. Know this. God sees and you can trust him to judge correctly. As a matter of fact, this is the last mention of Miriam 
in the story. We don't read about her again until her death in Numbers 20, eight chapters later. I think we could infer from that that she didn't really ever change her mind or her mode. She may have changed her actions, but she never stepped back into the role that God had her in previously because she let the poison of jealousy bring her to this action of betrayal, and it feels like she never made it right. So I want to say to you, maybe you're somebody here who has betrayed someone else, or they think you have. They've been hurt by you. I want to challenge you to remember who you are as a child of God. Children of God restore. Children of God apologize. Children of God make things right. They care and they work in compassion towards one another. If someone feels like you've betrayed them, go make it right with them. But if you're here today and you've been living, reacting to betrayal in your life, and right now the Spirit of God is saying, this is what's kept you stuck. This is why your life feels so heavy. This is why you can never get anywhere. This is why you feel so lonely. Because you've listened to this accusation of betrayal. You've lived in it. You've never let it go. I want to invite you today to let it go. Yes, they wronged you, and it was horrible and unredeemable, and it doesn't seem like it possibly could be repaired, but turn it over to the Lord. Remind yourself that your well-being is not about people's opinion of you or what people do to you. As a person of faith, as a child of God, your well-being is in the hands of your Heavenly Father. Their words, their opinions, their actions are not able to override almighty God's plans and purposes for your life. Do we believe that? Someone who's doing the wrong thing can't stop God's plan and God's purpose in my life. Do I believe that? Or do I think that God is up in heaven going, oh no, I hope they don't mess up what I'm doing. Let's live like that. And when I come back to a faith that God is big enough and good enough and faithful enough that I can take that betrayal and give it to Him and let Him sort it out, then you will have opened your soul up to the healing and renewal that God wants to bring. You can begin to walk in the peace that it comes from knowing no one can outdo God in your life. Knowing that God sees everything, judges everything, and that God will set all things right in time. God is trustworthy, even with betrayal. And maybe for some of you, you've been living in the fallouts of the pain for so long, and you've been confused and disheartened and discouraged. Maybe God is inviting you today to understand that that is just because been sitting there waiting for you to realize you can trust God with it. And there's freedom on the other side. I pray that we as God's people will learn what it is to act like God's people. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, this morning, this is a real issue for us in this room. Some of us are desperately in need of you to do a work in us, to open our eyes and open our souls, to set us free from the bitterness and the pain and the fear and the doubt and the 
the, the stuckness. Some of us really are desperate and, and it feels scary and it feels unfair and it feels all kinds of things that, that the enemy just keeps whispering at us and, and screaming at us and our flesh wants to be in charge and make it right and your spirit is calling gently. Will you give it to me? Will you trust me with it? Will you let me be the one to resolve it for you? God, help us to walk by faith in this. Help us to walk trusting you back towards peace and healing and hope. For every soul that is stuck here this day, Father, I pray your spirit would be speaking specifically to them about how you want them to act and go forward from here. I pray, Father, for your providence, for your goodness, for your faithfulness to be on full display as you pour out your work among us. Let us live and act as people that know we are safe in your hands, that know that you will be the judge of all the earth and you will do what is right, and that we can be concerned with just living out how you've called us to live, confident that you have us and will never let us go. We pray this this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite any of you back to our question and answer back in the youth room in just a few minutes.